So we have a study from the National Bureau of Economic Research that set out to answer some questions about, like, how, how did it go? Where did this money go, basically? And they asked a sort of a three-part question. Did it go to workers? Did it go to pay the bills of these businesses? Meaning, like, did it go to service providers, utilities, landlords? Or did owners and shareholders get this money? And would they have been able to meet most of their obligations without the PPP? This is Sarah Stewart-Holland. And this is Beth Silvers. Thank you for joining us for Pantsuit Politics. Thank you for joining us here at Pantsuit Politics, where we try to take a different approach to the news. On today's show, we're going to talk about the state of the Republican Party. We're going to take a look back at the Paycheck Protection Program. And outside of politics, we're going to talk about disproportionate stress responses. And you're just going to have to trust me. You want to stick around for it. Uh, First off, y'all, we got to a thousand reviews of our first book on Amazon. I'm so excited. Thank you to every single one of you who left a review. That was so kind. It really helps our book, not just the first one, but the second one we have coming out on May 3rd. So seriously, thank you. It really, really means the world to us. Thank you so much. And now you don't have to listen to me keep asking, which I'm also really (laughs) excited about. I appreciate all of you. We're also excited because our quarterly live event with premium members is coming up. Tuesday night, the 22nd, Maggie is real excited that it's on to 2222. Oh, yeah. Um, we're having our little chat with with um, our members where we do ask us anything kind of conversation. Sarah, I have learned something about you in every one of these. You would think at this point that I know all the things about you and I've heard all the stories, but every time we do one of these, someone asks a question and I learn something new and it's really fun. And it's also really fun to just get to put names and ideas together and be in community. So if you subscribe through Apple Podcast subscriptions, please make sure that you let Elise know what your email address is so we can get you connection information. And if you've been on the fence about joining our premium community, either through Patreon or Apple Podcast subscriptions, this is a great time. So links for both of those will be in the show notes. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to monday.com. We are special breakfast people here at Pantsu Politics, but not just when Beth and I are on the road. The truth is I want something warm from the oven every Saturday morning and Sunday morning. It's just the truth. It makes it feel special, makes it feel exciting. I don't want to work at it. So the first time I ever saw Wild Grain, which is bake from frozen subscription box for sourdough breads, fresh pastas, and artisanal pastries, I was obsessed. You guys, I've been a member for over a year. It's amazing. It's so easy. Every item bakes from frozen in 25 minutes or less. No thawing required. You can fully customize your Wild Grain box. You can choose any combination of breads, pastas, pastries. You can even build a box of only breads, only pastas, or only pastries if you'd like. 
And for a limited time, you can get $30 off the first box, plus free croissants in every box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit to start your subscription. Sometimes I make one single croissant just for me because I want to feel special and they're so good. You heard me. Free croissants in every box and $30 off your first box when you go to wildgrain.com slash pantsuit. That's wildgrain.com slash pantsuit or you can use promo code pantsuit at checkout. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. The Republican National Committee recently had its its winter meeting, Beth, and they decided the best and most productive way to conclude that meeting was censuring two of its own members, Representatives Liz Cheney and Adam Kinzinger, for participating in the House's January 6th Select Committee. I thought, thought it was a bold choice. It was a bold choice. Ronna McDaniel, who's the RNC chair, called the January 6th Committee, quote, Persecution of ordinary citizens who engaged in legitimate political discourse that had nothing to do with the violence at the Capitol. Fascinating. That's a that's a fascinating description. I got a few messages about this. People feeling really distressed. And I understand that response. I feel strangely cautiously encouraged. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. That's where I'm at. That's where I'm at. Because I think that the more everything just gets put on the table, the more it is going to force people to say, here's where I stand as to these issues. And you're already seeing some of that. Mm-hmm. Our Senator Mitch McConnell said, <laughs> actually, that was not, in fact, legitimate mm-hmm. political discourse. It was a violent insurrection. He used the word insurrection. Mitch McConnell said, no, that's not what happened. And then, you know, you saw Larry Hogan this weekend on the Sunday shows hinting at a presidential run and saying he does think there is a lane for sane Republicans. That's about as blunt as you can be as to what's going on here. There was a fabulous open letter to Ronna McDaniel from a former RNC chair who's also governor of Montana. So, you know, pretty conservative dude saying You are miscalculating because Mm -hmm. there is a great middle of Americans who do not like this and do not want to see more of this. I understand that you've got primary voters that you think want to be fed this all the time, but that is not where most Americans are. And so I think that the more they just put it out on the table, the more opportunity we see for things to start to turn from where we've been for the past few years. 
It's a cautious optimism that I have, but I feel a smidgen of hope. I agree. First, let me say, as a Democrat, I read this described as an unforced error, and I think that's right. I think that's right. So there's just the purely partisan part of me that's like, good job. Keep it up. Like, you have a lot of headwinds, but if you want to put up a barrier like this and focus on something that is divisive and not motivating um, for independent voters, then I'm fine with that as a Democrat because we have some stuff to overcome in the midterms. But if you guys want to help us out with this, as Larry Hogan so aptly described it, circular firing squad, then I'm fine with that. I'm fine with that. So, like, that's just the purely partisan part of me. The the citizen who values our democracy and wants Donald Trump as far away from it as humanly possible is also optimistic because this, to me, shows discord. This, to me, shows that his, you know, iron grip on the party is not as strong as we thought it was. And look, we're a two-party system. So even though I am a Democrat, I am invested in the health of our other major party. And so seeing this, seeing this like bubbling up to the surface to me is really promising. And look, you know, forever and always, the best thing I've ever read about Donald Trump, specifically with regards to politics, is that he never misses an opportunity to miss an opportunity. And that is going to continue to be true. That is going to continue to be true. He is going to continue to hurt himself by going after people only because he's mad and they were disloyal, whether or not it makes political sense, by continuing to litigate 2020 when literally everyone, okay, not literally everyone, unfortunately, a lot of people do want to continue to litigate 2020, but it's certainly not the smart political move under any rubric. And so, fine, keep doing it. Keep doing, make you know, keep pushing people like Mitch McConnell, who you know, hasn't been exactly consistent when it comes to January 6th and his statements regarding it, like further in the corner, like keep supporting, you know, right wing dingbats. I don't know another word for it that maybe can win in a primary, but can't win in a general like go for it. Fine. Keep at it, my friend, because I think you're just hurting yourself, which is why I'm optimistic. Your point about it being a two party system and needing healthy two parties because of that system is something I've been thinking about a lot. Um, We have a 14-year-old dog, so it's not really accurate to say that I walk her as much as we do sort of a step and survey situation. She takes one step and then she stops there and she looks around at everything for a while. It gives me a lot of thinking time. So on a recent (laughs) step and survey with Lucy, uh, I was thinking about whether I would vote for Adam Kinzinger or Liz Cheney or Lisa Murkowski or Mitt Romney, people who I think have been on the wrong side of a number of votes, but on the right side of votes that really matter in terms of our institutional integrity. And I was thinking about this hard because on the one hand, there are moments when I think it's important to just say loudly, none of this is acceptable. And if you've been party to any of it, it doesn't work. You know, I have a whole list of things that I'm mad at Mitch McConnell about, but I am not mad that he made this statement. I wish that he had backed it up with an impeachment vote, Mm -hmm. and I hope he regrets that every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, But I appreciate that he made this statement. 
as much as I would like it to be 435 to zero in the midterms, just to send that message, it's not going to be. And so I want to lean into the Larry Hogan's and the Chris Sununu's and the Lisa Murkowski's and even the Mitch McConnell's to the extent that they are voicing what's true. And I, I think that it's correct. You know, a lot of political analysts who I listen to and respect, I, th- I think they're correct in saying January 6th is not a midterms issue. The average voter is not going to be deep into the January 6th committee when they vote. But I also think it's true that the overall tone of things matters to people and that people don't like the overall tone going in the January 6th positive direction. David French had a really great piece about extremism being fomented in churches over the weekend. And a point that he made that I thought was so good was that Trumpism as a movement is emotional and spiritual in nature. You can't fight it with logic and reasoning and policy arguments because that's not what it's ever been about. So if I take that in the opposite direction and I look at what the RNC did here and the way that hardcore base Republicans increasingly talk about January 6th, I think it could lead us in the swing of like, maybe I don't care about the details and maybe I don't want to hear about a threat to democracy all the time. But tonally, this is not where I want to be either. Emotionally, this is not how I want our country to feel. I I hope so anyway. And I think the leadership matters. You know, I can get depressed and tell myself somebody like Larry Hogan has no chance in a primary. But it didn't take a whole lot for people to start accepting things that I thought were totally unacceptable from Donald Trump. Maybe it won't take a whole lot to influence people in a a new direction. And I appreciate anybody who's trying. Well, the interesting thing to me about Larry Hogan and Chris Anunu is that they bowed out of the Senate races, that they said, oh, we see where this is going or we see how this is like being handled and we don't want any part of it. That to me is the the less optimistic part of this whole situation is that you do have moderates being recruited for Senate primaries and they're saying, no, thank you. And that's hard because only one person can be the Republican nominee for president. Why well, I hope it's Larry Hogan or somebody like him, it is hard to think that we're going to have even fewer of those people in the United States Senate. But if you take a longer term view, I think that might be a form of pain that the party needs, too. I think Mm -hmm. Mitch McConnell might need the pain of getting turned down by extremely popular Republican governors when he calls them to ask them to run. for. And again, as a Democrat, it doesn't bother me. I hope they pick somebody extreme and they lose in Pennsylvania. Not a problem for me. Yeah, I don't feel that way. I, w- I would like to see good Republican candidates on the ballot just because over the long term, I want to see things improve. But maybe this is part of things improving. Maybe you need and, and I mean, it is consistent with like old school conservative philosophy to say exactly what they've been saying. You're more impactful as a governor. I mean, that's that's certainly true in the age of the pandemic. And there's a part of me that thinks Mitch McConnell sees this pain. And that's why we're seeing more bipartisan legislation. We're seeing fixes for the United States Postal Service. We're seeing that incredible forced arbitration ban that went through over the weekend under the leadership of primarily Gretchen Carlson, but I'm willing to give Congress a small amount of credit. You know, I think the reporting has been, this is all about the Democratic Party saying they can do stuff, but it is in the Republican Party's interest as well to say, look at us doing bipartisan legislation. If they're going to have to balance out, 
the more extreme rhetoric surrounding January 6th and the committee. Yeah. So, I mean, it's hard to say, boy, this is a feel good story when the two people who I think are doing the right thing get slapped down by their own party. But I choose to view it as an opening in a system that has felt very closed for too long. I think that's a great way to think about it. And we're not done thinking about it. We're not done seeing what's happening and where the movement will continue to be inside the Republican Party. Next up, we're going to talk about another bipartisan program (laughs) passed under both a Republican president and a Democratic president, the Paycheck Protection Program. If you're looking for a very quick salon quality, but not salon priced manicure, Olive and June has you covered. We've talked about Olive and June's Manny system before. It has everything that you need for a professional manicure in one box, salon grade tools, your choice of six polishes. Those polishes are gonna last you for seven days or more. The cost breaks down to about $2 a manicure. Olive and June also has press-ons if you want. What I love, though, is that Olive and June each season is coming out with new colors. And I just got a set of spring and summer colors in quick dry polish. They say this dries in about a minute. It seemed dry to me in about 30 seconds. It was not kidding about being quick dry. I also love the light colors in this set. There is a huge range. My favorite one is called Kitten. It's like a pinkish gray. The quick dry polish gives you full coverage in one or two coats. It lasts for more than five days and it is offered in more than 40 cruelty-free and vegan polishes. Olive and June just understands what's happening in our lives, that we need to move quickly, but we want to look great and feel great and have fun in the process. Visit oliveandjune.com slash pantsu for 20% off your first system. That's O-L-I-V-E-A-N-D-J-U-N-E dot com slash P-A-N-T-S-U-I-T for 20% off your first Manny system. just finished A Court of Thorns and Roses and craving another fantasy world to devour? Dipsy's got you. Dive into spicy enemies to lovers' tales or embark on an epic romance between immortal fae and sworn foes. They've got fantasy romance stories perfect for your morning walk, late night, or long bath. Dipsy is an app full of short, spicy audio stories. They bring scenarios to life with immersive soundscapes and realistic characters. Discover stories about second chance romances, adventurous vacation flings, and hot and heavy hookups. And there's a growing library of fantasy series with werewolves, Greek gods and goddesses, Regency-era historical fiction, and fairy smut to explore the bounds of your pleasure. New content is released every week, so in between listening to your favorite stories again and again, you can always find something new to explore. For listeners of the show, Dipsy is offering an extended 30-day free trial when you go to dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. That's 30 days of full access for free when you go to dipseastories.com slash pantsuit. dipsystories.com slash pantsuit. This show is sponsored by BetterHelp. Can I get something off my chest? Every day I feel a little pang of sadness. Because I think about Griffin going away to college. Y'all, he's a freshman in high school. This is not healthy or normal. This is why I have it on my list of things to talk to my therapist about. We all carry around these things. Big and small. When we keep them bottled up, it can start to affect us. Therapy is a safe space to get these things off your chest and to figure out how to work through whatever's weighing you down. If you're thinking about starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online, designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapist anytime for no additional charge. You gotta get it off your chest. And you can get it off your chest with BetterHelp. 
Visit BetterHelp.com slash Pantsuit today to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash Pantsuit. All right, the Paycheck Protection Program, let's do a little review. It was originally signed into law by then-President Trump in April of 2020 and then extended by President Joe Biden in March 2021. It has distributed $800 billion. It's a lot of money, a lot of money. And I think it's really, really important as we begin this conversation just to just remember what that felt like in April 2020. I know nobody's anxious to go back and revisit the emotional environment of the early pandemic. But when this first round was signed into law, it was really bad. We had revenues plunging. I will never forget that statistic about Disney losing like $3 billion a day and thinking, oh, I don't understand big corporate business and how they work. And it was just like a massive amount of money every single day. Credit was really hard to get. We talked about that a lot on the five things you need to know about the Federal Reserve, about what this was, what was happening at this particular moment in time, if you want to go back and listen to that episode. But credit was hard to get. Um, and you had layoffs and closures, really big ones all over the country. And so everybody was a little panicked. And knowing that everybody was a little panicked and that 47 percent of workers in the United States are employed by what qualifies as a small business. Now, small business is a huge umbrella term, as I'm sure Mm -hmm. we'll discuss more uh, in this conversation. But knowing that so many small businesses drive the state of overall employment, Congress enacted this program, the Paycheck Protection Program, to give loans to small businesses, but loans that were low interest, that did not require any collateral. You didn't have to promise anything in exchange for the loan except that you would meet some conditions to have the loan be forgiven. So if you were saying, I commit to keeping my workforce levels at roughly the equivalent they were before the pandemic, I commit to spend, I think it's 60% of this money on payroll. I commit to spend the rest of the money on things like utilities and rent. And I commit to keeping wages at about 75% of pre-pandemic level. If you met those commitments, then you got to just keep the money. So they functioned more like grants at the end of the process, assuming that you stayed with those parameters. And people took advantage of the program. It was like 94% of eligible firms applied for the Paycheck Protection Program. So we have a study from the National Bureau of Economic Research that set out to answer some questions about, like, how, how did it go? Where did this money go, basically? And they asked a sort of a three-part question. Did it go to workers? Did it go to pay the bills of these businesses, meaning like did it go to service providers, utilities, landlords, or did owners and shareholders get this money and would they have been able to meet most of their obligations without the PPP? Can I ask you a question about how you felt about this before we go through what they found? As I was reading it, it felt so weird to me to read about the beginning of the pandemic as like so definitively in the past. Mm. And to be talking about the results of this as though we are definitely in a new moment of time, like the whole thing has shaken out and now we can review it. And I just wondered how that felt to you. I feel like economically, that is a fair way to discuss it post-vaccination. 
I think economically being past the point where the, you know, risk of massive, you know, fallout or the level of impact that we were seeing at the beginning of the pandemic and the level of unknown because we didn't know when we get vaccines. We didn't know how effective the vaccines because, I mean, I feel, you know, we've talked about this so much when it comes to the economy. It's really about knowns and unknowns. And for better or for worse, when we enter the known period with the vaccines, that does feel like very, that's a very, very different phase. So they set out to answer these questions. And I mean, I think that, I don't know if you felt this while you were reading it. I felt the author's went out of their way to be extraordinarily nuanced and extraordinarily fair. Like they were trying to say like, this was hard and there were benefits before they give us some statistics that will make you mad. (laughs) 100%. I thought this was a very well done, robust after action review. I think Mm -hmm. it deserves probably to be updated in a couple years when we have even more benefit of hindsight. But I liked that they said, this is not a thumbs up or thumbs down. This is a what can we learn moment. Yeah, yeah. So they say it definitely prevented job losses. They measure it in what they call job years, which is basically like one job for one year. Like that's how we measure it. And they say it prevented 1.98 to 3 million job years of employment that was saved through the PPP loan. So that's a that's a lot. That's nothing mm-hmm. to, you know, write off. Jobs were saved because of this program. They also said that most of the money did not ultimately go to payroll. So remember that if I'm a business and I get this, I have to commit that 60% of the money goes to payroll in order for my loan to be forgiven. Very difficult to reconcile that condition with the finding that only between 23 to 34% of Paycheck Protection Program dollars went directly to workers who might have otherwise not lost their jobs. Three quarters of these funds were sent to the top quintile of households because those are the households that are going to be shareholders in companies. So the authors found that the program was highly regressive in this way. And they spend a lot of time talking about the government administration side of this. Okay, so why why did this happen? I love the analogy they use. They say the United States chose to administer the emergency aid using a fire hose instead of a fire extinguisher, with the predictable consequences that virtually the entire small business sector was doused with money. And so what they talk about is that in other high-income countries, like let's say Canada, they were, where they were doing basically wage subsidies, they already had a very good like administrative system for monitoring worker hours already in place. And so they were able to target the money. They were able to use a fire extinguisher to go in and say, okay, where are the biggest fires? Like, let's, you know, you're obviously going to think like um, the tourist section or the restaurant section. So they're going to go in and be able to subsidize those wages because they're already monitoring the hours and they, and they have the information to do that. We don't have that system. So Congress was faced with this choice. Okay, so can we, are we, do we want to be able to respond quickly or do we want to be able to respond in a targeted manner? Because we cannot have both. We cannot have both. We are going to have to trade off. Do we want to get the money out fast or do we want to get the money out like in a very specific way? And they chose to get it out quickly. And the authors are clear, like it was a fair trade off. That was real. I think part of what is so helpful about this report 
is the reminder that there are trade-offs in the program. And I would love to see this framework apply to a lot of our after-action review on the public health side as well. Like decisions Mm -hmm. have been made, policy decisions have been made at certain points. And we're going to have to look at some of those as legitimate in hindsight, even if they didn't produce the optimal outcomes with the benefit of more information. And they're clear. They say, like, very clearly, this was not, this should not be seen as a programmatic failure. Like, we just want to describe what happened. We're not saying that this program was a failure. And I'm about to have some real harsh critiques of the PPP program. And I agree. Like, I can critique it and say, this part went badly. It's not even that. My critique is actually not, it's not even a critique. It's just a a request for awareness, which is that, you know, they specifically compare it to the stimulus checks and the unemployment insurance extensions. And they say, like, those were applied more equally. That's what we know. That went to people who needed it. It was not as regressive as this. And what bugs me so much as we take this sort of like look back at the PPP program is that it's just silent. All these conversations about the money the government put out there, all these sort of assumptions and implications that like the government poured money out to the system and that's why we have inflation and it's the government, government, government. I feel like those are coming from places that and people that received PPP money. And that's what makes me so angry is it just feels like there is, you know, what I think their like sort of programmatic look back is so fair. I feel like what's happening among the American people, not fair. It's not fair. It's not being, you know, we're not being clear eyed about the money that came from the government's response to COVID. We're focusing all on the stimulus checks and the unemployment insurance and just forgetting this massive amount of money that, oh, just so coincidentally, went to the top income earners. So just to make sure everyone is tracking with you here, you are saying that we have a lot of people who have the biggest stake in the overall economy because they have the most money criticizing government programs that they willingly participated in themselves for put for pumping too much money into the economy. Yeah. You put too much money in my hands and now what shall I do with it? And, and there ergo inflation. Not even like overly critical. It's like it doesn't exist. I feel like nobody even talks about PPP anymore. It doesn't come up in these conversations. But it comes up for tiny businesses still. I mean, this, yes. this had a massive impact and nonprofits, religious organizations. Yeah, my church. Listen, I will, I'll say that. I'll say like it doesn't come up except for we just had our annual meeting in our church. We talked in the in our treasurer came up and said we got this money from the government. It was hugely impactful. And I hope that lands. But it's like it still feels a little bit to me like there's individual stories about how this program was good and impacted people. But there's not an equivalent to like we're quick with the stories of people who who abuse the unemployment insurance. We're quick with the stories of stimulus check corruption. Right. Like those are. That's the leading narrative about those programs, whereas the PPP, there's no conversation of like, and again, I'm not saying it shouldn't have happened. I'm just saying I do want some open-eyed, like, people on unemployment or people like criminals using a stimulus check weren't the only people getting money that they didn't need. And I'm not, again, I'm not even mad at the people who applied. I'm really not. I'm not, you know, I have lots of businesses in my community who got PPP money And maybe it helped a little and they ended up not needing it. But it's like they didn't know that when they applied. I just would like a little more open and transparent conversation post hoc, and a little more like, you know, instead of just 
ongoing criticism of the government, I feel like this is like a really good moment where we can talk about like the complexities of government programs and where it's not always just bad actors are, you know, lazy or corrupt bureaucrats. Sometimes it's just we're trying. It didn't work. And I benefited. And I just want to be honest about that. You know, I think it's hard to do a complete retrospective on this because of that dynamic that people applied for the funds with a certain set of assumptions about what was going to happen. And then not a lot of those assumptions panned out. I think that some of the businesses that most needed these dollars, the dollars were not enough for. Yeah. Local restaurants, local exercise facilities, places that really, really hurt. This didn't do enough to get Mm -hmm. many of them childcare facilities. It couldn't get them over the hurdle. And I'm I'm like you. I don't begrudge anybody who said, well, this is being offered to me. I'm going to take it. I, I think that is a perfectly reasonable stance. At the same time, how do you then assess the effectiveness of that money if you took it and then had a completely different set of needs? Part of what really struck me here is that if you look at paycheck protection as an attempt to preserve the status quo through a crisis, and when I look at those conditions for getting the money without repayment, that's what it feels like to me. We want to preserve the status quo best we can through a crisis. We had a flaw in our reasoning from the beginning because the status quo was unpreservable with any amount of money. Mm. It was unpreservable. So is it better to let some of the fallout happen? Is it better to recognize we really did need to remobilize a lot of people's labor during the pandemic and we didn't do it? We let things pretty well stay. And then we let our logistics sector collapse under the weight, you know, would it have been better to have something that wasn't focused on preserving the status quo? It was focused on shifting, Mm. shifting people and resources where they needed to go as this thing evolved. I think that's a really hard question, but it's one that I'm interested in talking more about because I don't think this is the last crisis that we'll have where preserving the status quo might be the wrong goal from the beginning. Well, and that's what I think bugs me about it is it feels like this was so different And so many people got so much money that there is a real opportunity to disrupt, in particular, the status quo around how we talk about government and money and how we think about government programs and money. Because it wasn't just poor people getting this money. And it was, you know, and it was widely accessed, right, I guess, in a way that that other programs haven't been. And it feels like, well, this is the moment. Like, let's acknowledge, like, it's these narratives we tell ourselves about government funding are a little more complex than we want to acknowledge. And but I'm worried that's not going to happen because what politician is going to want to stand up and say, oh, man, we passed all this money to rich people. Let's talk about how we can do better next time. (laughs) That's unlikely. That's another tough thing about assessing it, though, because it's a fair critique to say this program is highly regressive. But we have a highly regressive economy on every dimension. We have a highly inequitable economy. So were we putting this program in place both to preserve the status quo, but also to shift it and make it a little bit fairer? We have miraculously done that with some of the pandemic programs. Mm -hmm. We've made progress in that direction. But that is a steep ask for an emergency program that's supposed to be temporary in nature. So, you know, I I just don't know if that's a fair critique of it or not. It it met the economy it found. Yeah, well, and I I better not hear that 
narrative coming out of Josh Hawley's mouth. No, I mean, I don't want Democrats and progressive resting on this, waiting for Republicans to point this out. You know, the new like sort of populist Republicans, especially since it was the Biden wave of this relief that actually was targeted where they came in and said, "Okay, you need to show us revenue loss and then you can have the money. And I feel like that is also not something people know or not something people talk about. And that's just that's a like that's a that's a lost opportunity coming from Democrats. I think that's right. There is a ton to talk about here. And I just want to encourage everybody to stay in the mindset of this study because I think it talks yes, about it really fairly. Yes, they're so fair. And that's the thing. It's like no one's trying to Monday morning quarterback a pandemic. I mean, some people are and sometimes it's deserved. But you know what I mean? In this particular circumstance, I think the idea of like we just didn't know. And honestly, the at the end of the day, the best, most powerful tool the government off, often has is just to throw a lot of money at stuff. And I know people don't like to hear that. But it's the truth. And like we threw a lot of money at the pandemic. And so I don't think there's anything wrong with going like, how'd that turn out? Do we like it? Do we not like it without being without it turning into another like another sort of battleground of partisan warfare? When I was um, a lawyer doing family law, you know, I was in these crisis situations and people would call and talk to me for hours about their emotions which were very real. And I'm a pretty empathetic person. And so I could get sucked into that pretty fast. And I often had to pause and say, I just want you to understand that I have to charge you for the time we're spending together. And all I can do is money. Mm. And ultimately, the reason that was not a sustainable profession for me is because all I could do was money. And those situations cried out for a lot more than money. Money was really important, but it was almost never the most important thing happening in those dynamics. And I think that's been true about the pandemic. And so as you evaluate, especially the federal response, I think we just have to remember that limitation. I think you're right. The federal government can mostly direct funding. And so saying how can they do that most effectively is hugely important. But I think we also, in terms of just approval, disapproval, right track, wrong track kind of questioning, have to remember that there were a million factors here that had nothing to do with money and that any amount of money could not have changed. Yeah. So what are you, where are you at on the PPP loan program here in the year of our Lord 2022 on Valentine's Day as we're recording? I think knowing what we knew at the time that it was initiated and and I'm talking about under the Trump administration, I think it was the right thing to try. And I think that the way that it got kind of retooled under the Biden administration was was good. And those were steps in the right direction. And I do think there is a whole lot to learn from here. And and whether that is a whole lot to learn about infrastructure, as the authors describe in this report, or about just in a public policy conversation, like what should our goals be in the next crisis? I, I hope that we follow both of those lines of questioning. What about you? I feel a little bit better. I feel a little less angry. I was running really hot on the PPP program because I just felt like, you know, it's public information. I know who got it. And then I know what you're saying about stimulus and people not wanting to work. And it was just making me mad. Um, And so I really, more than anything, I just wanted to stay front of mind. I just Mm -hmm. don't want this to fade away um, because it's politically convenient for people. And because I do think it presents an opportunity to really open up some room and movement around how people think about government and government funding. And I just don't want that opportunity to pass us by. And if I could just make a suggestion about how to do that, if I were representing a district, I would come back to my district and talk with 
businesses that made it through the pandemic successfully, businesses that were really harmed, businesses that closed, and talk through, like, what kind of decisions were you making and where did this help you and not help you? Because all we can do is learn from it now. Like, I think that there is a real way to connect within your community because everybody did this. There is not a company on earth, including Pantsy Politics LLC, that didn't have to sit down and have hard conversations. Okay, what are we going to do differently now? And how did that go for us in retrospect? And who did that serve and who did it leave behind? I think everybody can understand the situation that Congress was in here if they put it to us on those terms. I do want to clarify, we had hard conversations about the pandemic. We did not apply for PPP funding. We did not. No. Right. So, and I, and again, no judgment if you did. I know it's not used to businesses. I just want to bring um, as much as we can as we move further and further out, lessons learned, clarity, and just transparency to PPP and what it did in so many communities. Sarah and I have talked many times about our desire to age as gracefully as possible, and skincare is a huge piece of that. I spend a lot of time and money thinking about my skin, and I have added Ritual to my routine, which just gives me a lot of comfort. Ritual is here for us. They have created a wrinkle support skin supplement and conducted clinical studies, so we know it's working. They're taking the guesswork out of skincare. Ritual Hyacera is one of several Ritual products that I love. I take the daily multivitamin, I take a probiotic, and Hyacera is that once daily skincare supplement that is clinically proven to reduce wrinkles and fine lines and increase skin smoothness in 90 days. I recently met a friend for the first time in person as opposed to online. And we were discussing the fact that I am 43 and she said, I cannot believe how young you look. And I thought, thank you, Ritual, for that. Start Hyacera to help minimize wrinkles without compromising on clean science. Hyacera from Ritual is a clinically proven skin supplement you can actually trust. Get 25% off your first month for a limited time at ritual.com slash pantsuit. Start Ritual or add Hyacera to your subscription today. That's ritual.com slash pantsuit for 25% off. Do you want a bra that's sexy or a bra that's comfortable? Thanks to Third Love, you can have both. Third Love was started to take all the frustration, ick, and ugh out of bra shopping. That's why they make solutions for every bra problem, aka problems. Their bras make it easy to bring back perkiness you haven't seen since high school, get smoothing you know where, and have straps that actually stay put. Designed at their headquarters in San Francisco and made from premium materials, they put every style through hours of wear testing on real women, including themselves, before it's given the stamp of boob approval. Comfort and support are guaranteed. Plus, whether you're a double A cup or an H cup, their virtual fitting room will help you find your perfect fit fast. And they've even invented half cups. No more feeling stuck between two cup sizes that don't fit right. It's time to get your problems solved. Visit thirdlove.com and get 15% off your order with code PODCAST15. There's not much worse than a dry energy scalp. Also, when you get your hair colored and then it does not last as long as you and your stylist discussed, it could be that unfiltered, mineral-filled water is the culprit. Hard water is a leading cause of damaged hair and dry, irritated skin, and about 85% of the United States uses hard water, filled with dissolved minerals and added chlorine. That's where Canopy's new filtered shower head comes in. Canopy, known for their beauty hacks and reimagined humidifier, has revolutionized the filtered shower head. Dermatologists recommended this unique three-stage filtration system greatly reduces contaminants and odors in your shower water. 
leaving you with healthy hair and glowing skin. Best of all, the Canopy Filtered Showerhead is hassle-free. Installation is a breeze. And its unique quick-release filter replacement feature allows for seamless filter replacement unlike any others on the market. Go to getcanopy.co to save $25 on your Canopy Filtered Showerhead purchase today with Canopy's hassle-free filter subscription. Even better, our listeners can use code PANTSUIT at checkout to save an additional 10% off your Canopy purchase. Hurry, your hair and skin will thank you. Beth, you had the excellent idea for us to have a conversation about disproportionate stress responses because we both experienced those last week. We did. It was it's funny because if you had asked me how I was feeling, I don't think I would have said that I felt particularly stressed. But I think that like everybody in my way, my string just keeps tightening. And mm-hmm. I felt the full impact of that last week. But you had a really dramatic uh tightening of the string last week. So you want to tell well, that story? Well, well, first let me ask you like what made you like what finally got your attention? So I um uh, spent last Friday substitute teaching. If you missed our first conversation about that, just a little recap. Consistent with the discussion Sarah and I just had where I mentioned we probably needed a redeployment of human resources during the pandemic. Uh, we both had felt for a while like we needed to contribute more to the education system, which like logistics and healthcare, care also uh, was not adequately supported over the past couple of years. So we both applied to be substitute teachers. The process moved uh, fairly quickly, probably not as quickly as anyone would have liked in my school district, but the, the district did a great job. It's just an onerous process under state law. And I was in a classroom on Friday, first grade classroom, and it was a fine day. It, I would not have described the day as stressful other than just getting acclimated to a setting I hadn't been in before. Kids were good. It was a fun day. They were all jazzed about Valentine's Day and the Super Bowl. If I needed to get their attention, I could just say, when I say Bengals, you say who day, you know, and they, they loved it. <laughs> um, and so everything went fine. I, I was not as exhausted as I expected to be at the end of the day. I was on my feet the whole time. I was interacting with little people. But I feel like my HR experience prepared me for this because it was a lot of they basically know their routines and what they need to do. And I'm just there to make sure everybody's OK. And someone needs something every second, but adults do, too. So it was the same kind of energy. But I got home and then kind of settled in to look at what all I had missed from my normal work day. And there was a whole lot of feedback coming in about the Olympics episode, and I did not handle it well. And what got my attention is that there was a point where I said out loud in my office, maybe I don't want to do this anymore, Mm. which I have said not once since we started the podcast, not once. And it's not like it was about what it was about. Because we get feedback about like abortion. And I mean, there there are moments when the feedback is much more intense than what we saw on Friday, but it just hit me so hard. And I realized, you know, Beth, you need to take a pause here and just kind of examine what's going on, because clearly there's something unarticulated that is creating this tension inside you. You had a similar experience. My stress had been stacking up. I had a really hard week last week. I was coming off a long visit. My father had been in town for 10 days, which, my, you know, my dad's a great house guest, but it's, a, it's still a long visit. We had had some really difficult family situations, not mine to share, but they were really hard and they were really stressful. I had another cold. I fell on the ice. 
And it got to the point on Tuesday where I woke up and thought, like, I just felt really down and weepy and depressed. And I'd been sort of blaming my disruptions in sleep for weeks on, like, either caffeine or hormones. And I'd cut caffeine, and I knew where I was with my hormones, and I thought, okay, I think that you need to acknowledge that this is not these, you know, external issues, but just stress. Your body is really stressed. You are really stressed. So I took a mental health down Tuesday, and I was feeling better. But, you know, we recorded several things over the course of the week where I was coming in hot. I was coming in hot. (laughs) And I acknowledge that. A lot of people, you know, it's so funny. Our audience is like either, you know, there's the Enneagram ones that are like the Enneagram one in me season loves the Enneagram one in you. Like they like it when I come in hot. But there are people who don't. And there were people who felt probably, I think, like rightfully so, like this is out of character. Like this is a little, this feels a little like a swerve from what you're like, your sort of normal content. And I thought a lot about that. Like I thought about a lot about like the parasocial relationship that like people don't know what's going on in my life like that Tuesday I had such a terrible day and I was trying to like get it together and I sat down and somebody had written a comment on the blog that was like you say like too much I read transcripts and it's even worse you need to work on that and I just burst into tears (laughs) like I just like I can't take this anymore (laughs) but also it's weird because there were real positive parts of that I think so many of our listeners who I know love and care about us saying like you're coming in hot like they didn't They didn't know what was going on, but I think in a way they did know like that something was up, you know, because I do feel like it was a little bit of a swerve. And so like enough people saying, hey, this this feels different, (laughs) sort of, you know, got my attention. But but let me just share. Beth's already heard the story. Let me share the most dramatic moment of a disproportionate stress response of my week last week. Oh, my God. I can't believe I'm going to tell their nose the story. But here we go. On Wednesday, I went out for Galentine's Day. Things were fun. Everything's getting better. And as as it does around a table of women in their late 30s, 40s, late 40s, it ta- it turned to, uh, you know, skincare, plastic surgery, Botox. Beth knows. Beth, I've been curious about Botox for a while. Mm-hmm. Pretty curious. Pretty curious. I'm interested. I got some 11s. I look at my face every morning on the news brief. I'd like for them to be less deep, okay? So I've been curious. And just like on a whim, which my husband was like, you always do this, it's probably another part of the stress response. I was like, I'm going to do it. I'm going to do it tomorrow. So on Thursday, I went and got a sprinkle, just a tiny little amount of Botox, first time. But it's nerve-wracking, right? Was this perhaps the best mental state for me to be in to have something injected into my face for the first time? Probably not. Probably not. But I did it. I did it just the same. And I, but I was nervous. I got through it. It was fine. And I start texting a fellow podcaster who has a passion for skincare, <clears throat> whose name I won't name, even though she names my name on her podcast all the time. It's fine. And <laughs> she was like giving me advice about aftercare, like good, fair advice, whatever. But I had not done any of it. In fact, I had done some sort of what, what the internet like contraindicated, like you're not supposed to exercise. And I'd been on this long walk. And she was like, as long as you didn't smear sunscreen on your face. Oh, I did that too. So I'm like in a panic, in a panic, start to panic, feel myself a little bit blacking out, have to sit down. (laughs) And it's like, I think back on it. I'm like, okay, so when I started to black out, what was I thinking? It's not like I thought I was like having sudden onset Botox death. Like, I don't know what I thought was going to happen, but I just felt, I mean, Beth knows this. We've talked about this. I I have a, what some might describe as a hypervigilance about my body. Like, I know I'm going to die, but it's not going to be because I ignored something. You know what I mean? Like, that's this is my, like, 
<laughs> fundamental principle in life. Okay. And so I'm like starting to panic until y'all, I had to get up off my bathroom floor. I walked into my bathroom and fully fainted like one of those fainting goats just out over to the side. This has never happened to me before. I have never passed out from anxiety, but I did. And I thought, how much, <laughs> like, you know, that Oprah has that thing, like first life sends you a tap on the shoulder and like, then life sends you like a, you know, a, a, a tiny pebble to the side of the head. And then it gives you a brick upside the face. And I thought, well, this is like the fullest physical manifestation of my body being like, girl, you need to calm down, calm down. I was fine. I put my legs up. My doctor was like, oh, my goodness gracious. Like, the worst that could happen is bruising. Chill out. As long as you didn't, like, lay down and take a nap for, like, several hours afterwards. Like, you are fine. Everybody's fine. Everything's fine. <laughs> and I calmed down. But I was like, I could not get over the fact that I fully fainted. Just, like, I blacked out a little bit when I was pregnant because I have low blood pressure. But when I tell you I was unconscious and then woke up and it took me a second to figure out where I was, like some Victorian, like, lady. It was totally wild. Totally wild. And let me just underscore, Sarah is perhaps underselling her commitment to discovering what, what ails her. <laughs> I she is like very hyper, hyper serious about immediately identifying the cause <laughs> the and yes. rectifying it so yes. that she feels 100% again in all circumstances. So, yes. So I can imagine the stress level about the Botox, yes. but then also that stress level magnified by the fainting. Yes. That's a yes. lot for you to process. In it's one so day. much. It's so much. And I think there was just sense of like, I've are I I can't. It was probably the la- loss of control. Like whatever I've done wrong, I've already done. Yeah. The, the Botox is already in my face. But it was just like when you said disproportionate stress response, I was like, oh, I think I, I think I have a good <laughs> example of that. Me over here like a fainting goat. Like I just y'all, it was a scene, and I could not stop talking about. It. My husband was like, I do not want to hear another word. And I was like, I fainted. We have to talk about this for at least three more days. It is. A really difficult thing to talk about because, number one, we do share so much of ourselves in public spaces that mm-hmm. it is it's sometimes difficult to remember that there are things that we don't share in public spaces and to process yes. for our to process for us, what do I share and not share? And so there's that layer. For me, the other thing, though, is, again, I really cannot make a good list of why I'm stressed right now. There's an ambient quality to it. It is almost like I am stressed because what else would we be? And then on another level, I'm stressed about being stressed because I can't make that list. Like it feels unearned or undeserved Mm. or like I'm so aware of everyone else's stress and the reasons for it. And mine seems to pale in that sort of Olympics of who gets to feel that I kind of feel like I need to issue a disclaimer anytime I say something about how I'm feeling. And that winds me up tighter. And I think that after spending all day so dialed in to how kids were feeling, Mm -hmm. I just, I was dialed all the way up for myself too. Yeah. And, And because I spent all day teaching myself to take it seriously 
that this little girl's sore on her arm really is very distracting for her. That mm-hmm. this little girl's experience of the boy who's more interested in Pokemon than her is very distracting. That for this little boy, that skin that won't come off his index finger is very distracting. Like I spent all day saying, do not minimize what they're feeling. And so then I came home and I didn't minimize for myself either. And it turns <laughs> out that I do a lot of minimization for myself. <laughs> and things really come undone when I don't. Yeah. I, I can name one thing that I realized has been stressing me out and not even I don't know if like stress is the right word just like affecting me that I've been meaning to talk to you about as well and it's very related to the 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 Botox which is I got old over the pandemic and it was like I was shielded from the impact of that like I turned listen I'm not I don't use old pejoratively Um, I take every day I don't take a single day for granted I have friends that aren't here I don't forget that but like (laughs) <laughs> I turned 40 over the pandemic. My youngest child went to kindergarten over the pandemic. And that's fine. Those are like big, important milestones. But I didn't get that like external reminder of like, hey, the, like you're in a different phase of life now. Like, and what I mean is like now that things are getting a little bit back to normal, like we went to two big community events, which we had not been to in basically two years. I rolled into the first one and a girl that used to babysit for me was at the bar. And I'm like, wait, what? What's happening she's not legal she can't drink and then the second one we went to we were the oldest couple at the table and like you know the other couples were like having babies and getting married and I thought but like that's me I'm in that group oh I'm not in that group anymore I'm not in that group it happened over the pandemic and like secret and now it's like hitting me in the face constantly and I'm like again I'm not mad I don't I don't I have no great aversion to aging. I really don't. I realized I just told my told a story about myself getting Botox, but I swear to you, like, I am very happy to age, but it just kind of, like, hit me all at once and dealing with all this stuff, like, you know, the parenting issues get harder and more difficult. We're dealing with that. You know, caregiving and family relationships get harder and we're dealing with that. And it just, it, man, it stacks up on you until you're fainting literally on your chair in your bedroom over some Botox. Yeah, it is tough to hold on to both things that I have... Uh, such an abundant life that makes me so happy that is everything I would choose if I had chosen all of it consciously mm-hmm. in terms of its effect and what it feels like to be me every day. It's it's wonderful. I have no complaints. And also I am I'm wound up right now wound and, up. Yes. and I've got to work on it. But I am I am wound tight right now. And so that's just what I want to say. Like if you if you sensed in our shows and or premium content that we're wound up a little tight, you're correct. I appreciate your love and support. Like, I really did feel like there was a big part of our community that was like, hey, I see you. You wound up a little tight. And I just kind of wanted to be like, yes, thank you for noticing and sticking with us through it. As you talked about the aging, I'm experiencing that, too. Some of those places where it hits you in the face. Oh, friend, you crossed a threshold at home. But I think the other thing that is easy to forget, especially because we do work in isolation still most days, Mm -hmm. not having anything to do with the pandemic. It's just the nature of our work. It is easy to forget that everybody else is wound up tight, too, because I don't see that constantly. And so just reminding myself, others feel this, too. You are not alone. Like, this is... This is the condition of people right now. Yeah. And so where you're wound up and where others are wound up, they're not always going to intersect in a need and supportive fashion. <laughs> that's right. That's okay. Yeah. Right. I think this is a good place to bring in something we learned from listeners this week. We got a lovely message on all accounts from Julia. But Julia ended it with just the perfect phrase for this moment, which was, I hope life this week has been more joy than sorrow. 
which I think is perfect. So Julia, wound up version of me is going to be looking for that calculus where if I had more joy than sorrow. And I that's a gift. Thank you. Thank you for joining us. We hope your days are holding more joy than sorrow right now. Thank you for being with us in our wound up tightness. We will be back in your ears on Friday. And until then, keep it nuanced, y'all. Pantsuit Politics is produced by Studio D Podcast Production. Elise Knapp is our managing director. Maggie Penton is our community engagement manager. Dante Lima is the composer and performer of our theme music. Our show is listener-supported. Special thanks to our executive producers. Martha Brunitsky. Hallie Edwards. Janice Elliott. Sarah Greenup. Julie Haller. Helen Handley. Tiffany Hassler. Emily Holliday. Katie Johnson. Katina Zuganellis-Kasling. Barry Kaufman. Molly Kors. The Creeps! Lori Ladau. Lily McClure. Emily Neasley. The Pettins! Tawny Peterson. Tracy Putoff. Sarah Ralph. Jeremy Sequoia. Katie Steigers. Karen True. Annika Uveline. Nick and Elisa Valelli. Catherine Vollmer. Amy Whited. Jeff Davis. Melinda Johnston. Ashley Thompson. Michelle Wood. Joshua Allen. Morgan McHugh. Nicole Berkless, Paula Bremer, and Tim Miller.